Saints of God, let's return in our Bibles to Genesis in the fourth chapter. If you're visiting with us today, uh, know that we have been making our way through this first book of the Bible, and we are at a place in which we are confronted with evil and God's response to it. We'll be reading of the first murder and God's response to it. I'll begin reading at verse 8 of Genesis 4, and I'll read through verse 12. This is the word of God. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now... You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You work the ground. It shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our Father, we are assembled here, ready and by your grace, willing to hear from you whatever you want to say to us, however you want to reveal yourself to us. We're ready to hear it, to believe it, to heed it, and we uh, simply ask that you would deal with us always, in and through our Savior's blood, and give us this hour the blessing of being your children. We're able to sit at your feet, to be instructed by our Father. Hear this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 4 tells us of the first murder in human history. It also tells us of the first murder trial uh, in human history. That's what we're returning to as we return to Genesis 4 this morning, the defendant on trial is the firstborn son of Adam. His name is Cain. Uh, the murder victim is his younger brother. His name is Abel. The prosecutor, the judge, and the jury in this murder trial is Yahweh, God himself. It's a little bit of a crime drama, you might say. And as we come back to the text this morning, we're naturally interested in knowing how will the defendant plead? Will he acknowledge his guilt? Will he throw himself on the mercy of the court? And folks, you know the answer to that. As shocking as the murder itself was, there will be something more shocking. And that's the conduct of the murderer at his trial. So we have more grim realities to face. 
uh, brothers and sisters, in our text this morning. I will say to you that as grim as those realities are, there is going to be encouragement to us as well because we live in a world of canes and we live in a world that is presided over, ruled, one day will be judged by God of perfect justice. That is the comfort of the righteous. So here's three things we'll do this morning. We'll look at, a, at the frightening signs of a hardened heart. Then we'll look at the infamous testimony of the first sociopath. And then we'll look at the kind of blood, the kind of blood that won't keep quiet. First, then I'm calling first point, the frightening signs of a hardened heart because of what we read in verse 9. In verse 9, there's a question that's put by God to Cain, and the answer that God, rather that Cain gives, is the evidence that I want us to see of a hard heart. God says, where is your brother? Now, we're not told the context of this question, and there's been, as you can imagine, various speculations. There's one interpretive tradition uh, that envisions the question coming from God to Cain as that first family gathered again uh, for an occasion of worship. We might be able to surmise that they had patterns of worship. We saw Cain and Abel coming to God with their offerings earlier. Some have supposed that uh, that's happening again and everyone is there before God. But of course, except Abel. And that's the occasion when God looks at Cain. He says, where is your brother? We don't know precisely, of course, the context in which God asks the question, but we know this without any doubt. Cain has a personal encounter with God in the wake of of his murder of his brother, and he's given an opportunity by God's question, where is your brother Cain, or Abel, to confess to the crime? Uh, that's not a question, as you can well see, that God is asking with a real desire to get information. All-knowing God is altogether aware of the answer to the question. It's like the question he'd asked first of and of Eve, when he comes into the garden and they're hiding and he says, where are you? It's an invitation to them to come to him and tell him what they've done. Folks, next week, Lord willing, we'll come back to the grace that's found here again in God as he begins with a question. But brothers and sisters, Cain's reply shows us something that is so very familiar to us now. At this point, of course, in redemptive history, it's evidence of a heart that has hardened in its sin over time. Listen to the two things that Cain says. Where is Abel, your brother, he's asked. His response, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You should hear a couple of things in those two things. Denial. And defiance, kids, um, ask yourself this question. Did Cain know so little about God as to think that he was really unaware of the truth? Did he really think that he could deceive the Almighty? Did he think he could just deny his way out of the consequences of his sin? Whatever he thought, he adopts the policy 
It's one that countless sinners have adopted after him. Deny, 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 as long as it's possible to do so. That's his first response. And Cain, of course, is lying. Lying of all things to God's face. He knows where Abel is. He knows where he left the body, perhaps even concealing the body. But Cain, as we saw last week, is of his father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, Jesus tells us. And he's putting this lie technique to its classic use. It's to avoid the consequence of his own sin. So his first response when confronted with his sin is to lie. His second response is more shocking yet. He doesn't only say, I don't know where my brother is. He says, in effect, how dare you ask me? That's how I read his question back to God. Am I my brother's keeper? God has asked a question of Cain. Now Cain has a question for God. And it's not a request for information either. It's a challenge to God's right to ask him about his brother. As a boy, I was inclined to hear Cain's response as essentially saying, am I my brother's babysitter? Is that what I look like? And I realized as a boy, that's a wicked thing to say to God. But I also realized there was something I thought a little clever in that because Cain's making a plausible point. Am I supposed to never let my brother, my grown brother, out of my sight? Uh, many have pointed out that Cain's doing something more than just clever, though. He's being very cynical. Remember how Abel was introduced to us back in verse 2? Abel's a keeper of sheep. Cain is saying to God, what am I, the keeper of the keeper? Am I supposed to be the shepherd of the shepherd? Do you hear his heart make your blood run cold? To think of the way Cain is speaking to his creator. Gone beyond lying. This is defiance. The best defense is a good offense, the saying goes. That's what Cain's doing. He's going on the offense. He's challenging God himself. How dare you ask? Folks, I think you can see the difference between a sinful heart and a heart that is hardened in sin. When you compare Cain's response to God's question with his father's response years before, what did Adam say when he was first confronted by God? Back in chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? Here's Adam's answer. I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What's Adam doing? Well, Adam is a newfound sinner in all the depravity of that, but it's pretty fresh, isn't it? He's a new sinner. His response to God's question is at least to be honest, isn't it? He comes clean, at least with regard to why he's nowhere to be found as God comes into the garden. And yes, we were very hard on Adam, as we saw in chapter 3. There's no evidence of repentance in him. There's blame shifting. There's signs of a soul that's lost that needs to be saved. 
but we don't see Adam doing what Cain now is doing. Matthew Henry describes Cain's response. He flies in the face of God himself as if he'd asked him an impertinent question to which he was in no way obligated to answer. I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, the difference between Adam and Cain is simply, profoundly, sin at work in the heart over time. Cain is a hard-hearted sinner. We see in Adam in chapter 3 what sin does in a soul in a matter of a few minutes or hours. We see in Cain in chapter 4 what sin does over the lifespan of a man. Cain has more than just a bad heart, like his father did. He has a hard heart. And it's a frightening thing to behold. I'm saying, brothers and sisters, I'm actually saying that the picture we have of Cain in verse 9 is in some ways more frightful than the picture we have of Cain in verse 8. Murder a man? But by the grace of God alone, we're not Cain's. We saw that last week, didn't we? You take the wrong circumstances, you take the right fit of passion, and we'd all be guilty of what Cain did. But it takes a harder heart to say what Cain says to God in verse 9 than to do what he does to his brother in verse 8. Brothers and sisters, those are the signs of a hard heart. Whether we're seeing them in our own heart or in a brother or sister's heart, hearts of those in our society that are rightly most frightening. Children, can I have a word with you for a moment? Children? I've told my children over the years, when they were your age, the worst thing you can do is to lie to dad. This congregation has heard that before. But children, do you think that sounds strange? It might sound strange to you to hear me say the worst thing a son could do to a father is to lie to dad. You might be able to think of other things that are really, really bad and could be even worse in your mind, but children, Cain shows us why lying, especially about our sins, is the worst thing. Lying's not just against one of the commandments of God. It's not just a striking at the very heart of a relationship like dad's and Kids have, built on trust, but lying to dad or mom's face, one of the most hard-hearted things a child can do, it shows you're not only a sinner, every child's a sinner, but in that moment at least, your heart, your heart is hard in your sin. You're acting like Cain. That frightens parents, kids. Here's the good news. Children, here's the good news. Honest, open confession of sin to mom or to dad is the fast track to your parents' joy. Your sin makes them sad, to be sure. It might even scare them, but your repentance is such 
relief. Shows that you're a sinner, but you still have a soft heart toward your sin. And all this that I've just been talking about is actually for everybody, because we're all the children of our Father in heaven. That's what Cain should have done when God says, where's your brother? He should have started crying. Instead, it, it appears he starts shouting. A hard-hearted sinner. That's the frightening signs of a hardened heart. Now let's look at the infamous testimony of the first sociopath. Now, of all the things that we find in chapter 4, easily the most famous, the most often quoted line in all of chapter 4 is this second word from Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? I uh, did a little Googling. And uh, you'd be surprised at how many times this expression comes up in popular culture. I lost track of how many movies have the title, My Brother's Keeper. Uh, movies, documentaries, novels. I even found a progressive bluegrass band called My Brother's Keeper from Ohio. I don't know if they're any good or not. Main thing that you'll find if you Google My Brother's Keeper is now a 10-year-old government program, social program of the federal government called My Brother's Keeper. What about this expression has so captured the imagination of people well beyond the church and Christians? Well, listen carefully. It's the recognition that in Cain's question to God, there's something even more than defiance against the Almighty. These words capture a whole outlook on life that if unchecked will destroy a society. It's this outlook that we will watch develop all the way up to the days of Noah when we're told the earth was filled with violence. So these iconic words of Cain warrant a closer look. The key word in his question back to God in all of its insolence is the word keep. Am I my brother's keeper? It's a word that simply means to watch over, to protect, to provide for. It's what shepherds, yes, do with sheep. It's what big brothers and sisters do with their little brothers or sisters. It's what God does in a special way with his covenant people. It's the same word in Psalm 121. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? He's doing something we've seen before in Satan. He's clothing a lie with the truth. Cain was not Abel's zookeeper. He was not tasked by God with being his parent in some capacity as a grown man. He was certainly not responsible to keep track of every movement like he was a toddler. But brothers and sisters, Cain's question displays this radical disregard for the very person he should have had in a special way, tender, loving care for. Cain is, this is the sociopath. Cain is saying, I'm not responsible to know where my brother is. 
All the while, he knew exactly where his brother's body was. I'm not responsible for my brother's well-being. All the while, he took responsibility for his violent death. I'm responsible for my life. Abel's responsible for his life. As if he hadn't taken responsibility to himself for ending his brother's life. I'm saying this is a sociopath talking. And, okay. As I use that modern term, I do have my tongue in my cheek a little bit. It's not a biblical term. We don't really need a secular diagnosis of Cain, but this did, uh, was fascinating to me uh, to compare the Mayo Clinic's profile of a sociopath with Cain. Just listen, indulge me. Antisocial personality disorder, sometimes called sociopathy, is a mental health condition in which a person consistently shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. People with antisocial personality disorder tend to purposely make others angry or upset or manipulate or treat others harshly or with cruel indifference. They lack remorse or regret for their behavior. Yeah, that sounds like Cain. First sociopath. But of course, the Bible doesn't call this a personality disorder. It's just sin. You might say, going to see. Sin, bearing its full fruit in the life of a sinner. Folks, what's the right answer to Cain's defiant question? Are we our brother's keepers? In a word, yes. Yes, we are. We are all responsible to watch over, to provide for, to protect one another. That's how God's ordained societies, small and large, to operate. This is the second commandment, which is like unto the first. Matthew Henry again. Those who are unconcerned in the affairs of their brethren and take no care when they have opportunity to prevent their hurt in their bodies, goods, or good name, especially in their souls, do in effect speak the language of Cain. Amazing to think where society is in Genesis 4, which is to say... <laughs> how little there is of society. It's one family. That's what society is. It's one man, one woman, and their sons, at the least. And look at what the cancer of sin is already doing. It's tearing that little society apart. I've told you before, I, I don't really enjoy dystopian literature and film, I don't find it edifying, not because I think it's so unrealistic. It's because I think it's so real. Where all society would turn in a matter of moments apart from God's common grace, his restraining hand, because to use the modern lingo, we're all sociopaths by nature. Every man for himself. This is what is the foil, the dark backdrop to what the scripture says about 
another society called the church. Remember how the book of James concludes? Basically calling on us to be our brother's keepers. The book of James concludes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That sounds like we're being our brother's keepers in the, people, in the covenant community of God. Thomas Manton comments on that. He says, we're not only to take care of our own salvation, but the salvation of others. Well, there you go. You see what sin has done to Cain? It's turned him in on himself. It's made a Unitarian out of him. We're to be Trinitarian, turned out towards others that God has placed in our lives, loving them and doing good for them, and yes, watching out for them. Members of Resurrection, be your brothers or your sisters. Keeper. It's actually what makes life in the covenant so sweet. Knowing that people are looking out for you, providing, protecting, that they all recognize they are deputized by Christ the shepherd himself to be part of the means that he uses to bless us and keep us. You are your brother's keeper each one of us, under the keeping grace of God. So that's the frightening signs of a hardened heart. That's the infamous testimony of the first sociopath. And the third thing this morning, what I've called the kind of blood that won't keep quiet. So we've seen the murderer's denial. We've seen his defiance. And now we'll weigh what the judge says next. Verse 10, he asks a question. What have you done? And that's not a question for more information either. You should hear in that the judge's horror being now expressed at Cain's wicked deed. Uh, then the judge brings his indictment. It's a charge of guilt and a verdict of guilty all in one. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. However much Cain might have fooled himself to think he could conceal his deeds, kids, just like you're taught in the catechism, nothing can be hid from God. And then there's a sentencing of the murderer. We're going to come back to this next week. Verse 11 and 12 gives a curse. And we've seen God pronouncing a curse before, but that curse to Adam and Eve is a curse that all mankind fell under. This is a curse that's unique to Cain. The curse of Cain. We'll need to return to that next week. For our purposes this morning, I want us to spend our last moments considering those words God gives to Cain. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So listen, folks. This is God saying to Cain more than simply, I know what you've done. It's as if God is telling Cain how he knows what he's done. Abel's blood told him 
That's how God is speaking. God attributes to Abel's blood, you can see it there, the ability to speak, the voice of your brother's blood. Indeed, that voice becomes a cry. It's been crying out to God. So even though Abel's been silenced by the crime of murder, his blood hasn't been silenced. It won't be quiet. And as God speaks this way, we recognize he's speaking in figures, in metaphors. We could say he's personifying things because bloodstains don't talk in a literal sense. When God uses these figures, these metaphors, he's making his point ever so Vividly, he's saying essentially this, Cain, you can hide your crime, you can hide the body, it cannot be hid from me. Your guilt is just as unerasable as the blood is unextractable from the dirt. You may think that no one heard Abel when he cried out in pain and fear as you ambushed him, but... I'm hearing his blood cry to me, and I am determined to answer it. What does he mean? Folks, God's telling Cain, Abel's blood, your brother's blood, cries to me from the ground for vengeance, and I'm the avenger. is this vengeance I'm talking about? Well, it's an expression of God's justice, but particularly his, his justice against those who have cruelly treated others. The Bible's clear on two things when it talks about this greater theme of vengeance. It's clear that we're not to take vengeance ourselves on those who cruelly treat us, but secondly, God most certainly will. He will avenge the deeds of those who cruelly treat us. Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So this curse upon Cain, as we will see, is not just a sense of God's, uh, it's not just God's sense of injustice his justice being offended. It is that, of course. It's more than that. This vengeance that God is pronouncing and pursuing against Cain is an expression of his love for Abel. Don't miss that. It's an expression of his love for the righteous man who was cruelly murdered. Now, this is a theme that will be written large through the rest of the Bible, Old Testament into the New. You know what we're supposed to do with this? We're to take comfort in it. Yes. We're to take comfort in it. And we're, from that comfort, to be better resigned to suffering for now, the cruel treatment of others. I'm going to let John Calvin develop this a bit, because John Calvin knew a whole lot more than I do about suffering at the hands of persecutors or wicked men. Calvin didn't die a martyr, 
uh, you know this about John Calvin. But he trained men for the ministry there in Geneva. And he sent out hundreds of men into Europe, all the way to Brazil, as a matter of fact. And many of those men that he trained, invested, and mentored left Geneva to go preach the gospel in lands hostile to the faith, and they were murdered. The statistics, which I didn't go and verify for the purposes of this morning, are shocking. This makes it real. How many Nathaniel Brooms were sent out from Geneva only to be slaughtered? So listen to what he says, commenting on this passage. A larger, a longer than usual quote. It's worth it. Calvin says, this is a wonderfully sweet consolation. That good men who are unjustly harassed, when they hear that their own sufferings, which they silently endure, go into the presence of God of their own accord to demand vengeance. Abel was speechless when his throat was being cut or in what other, other means he was losing his life. But after death, the voice of his blood was more vehement than any eloquence of the orator. Thus, oppression and silence do not hinder God from judging the cause which the world supposes to be buried. This consolation affords us most abundant reason for patience when we learn that we shall lose nothing of our right if we bear injuries with moderation and equanimity. But God will be so much the more ready to vindicate us the more modestly we submit ourselves to endure all things because the peaceful silence of the soul raises effectual cries which fill heaven and earth. I need to hear this. I need to remember this. Just reading my paper. Churchgoers slaughtered in their pews by Muslim radicals in Africa. Pastors arrested in the night never to be heard of again totalitarian regimes, or for that matter, far beyond persecuted in the church when opposition leaders die in penal colonies, when children die in the hands of drug cartels, when a father, a husband and a father, upstanding sergeant, deputy sergeant, is gunned down at a traffic stop. And so little seems to be done. Folks, what if there was no God? Worse yet. What if there was a God, but he didn't care? The world would be nothing but sound and fury, right? Signifying nothing, right? But there is a God. He sees all. He cares. Every, every drop of blood will have its reckoning. Jesus is referencing this, referencing even Abel, 
as the first of many martyrs whose blood cried out for God's judgment upon the enemies of the church, Jesus said to the leaders of his day, on you will come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So brothers and sisters, the blood of martyrs won't keep quiet. It cries out to God for justice and he will surely give it in due time. That's the comfort of the righteous, and that steadies them to do what they're called by God to do, which is not themselves, to take vengeance, to suffer as their Savior suffered. There is a kind of blood that won't keep quiet. But I'd like to close this morning with this question. What if it's true that in an absolute sense none of us are righteous in ourselves? What if in that sense there is no one righteous, not even one? Paul says in Romans 3. What if even righteous Abel Jesus calls him that, had to have his sins dealt with in order to be righteous. Folks, this is what I want you to go from here with. There's a kind of blood for that too. And it's a blood that won't keep quiet. Notice though, it's a blood that cries out to God for something other than justice. It's a kind of martyr's blood, but it doesn't cry out for vengeance. It's a blood shed voluntarily as the satisfaction of God's vengeance on sinners. It's a blood that cries out to God ceaselessly not to avenge, but to forgive. You know, that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. When he says it so exquisitely of our Lord's blood, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out to God, avenge my death, and God heard it. The blood of Jesus cries out, forgive them, forgive them. God hears that as well. Hebrews 12 You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We'll sing this hymn as we return this evening. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. Your greatest comfort, your greatest comfort comes not in the knowledge that the judge will bring judgment on sinners. Your greatest comfort is that that just judge will be merciful to you a sinner, he will heed the cry of the blood that cries out from the soil beneath the cross of Jesus, if you will, who cries out for your pardon. 
you and I would be eternally grateful. That's the kind of blood. Don't keep quiet. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we asked you at the outset to tell us anything you wanted to. Make us ready and willing to receive it. So you've told us dreadful things about yourself and wonderful things. We would receive it all in fear and trust we would obey, and we would rejoice, delight of heaven. Give us yourself as you give us your word, and we pray that you will, Lord Jesus, make even this prayer acceptable to the Father by your precious blood. We ask you in this in your own name, amen.